Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. G-Force, G7 leaders will provide 1 million vaccine doses to poorer nation. Talks continue in Cornwall. Big Diddy, China's ride-hailing giant, eyeing a potential $70 billion New York IPO. And game on or game over, hackers steal source code from electronic arts. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday as leaders of the G7 nations unite in their first in-person meeting since the pandemic began face-to-face again. And most importantly, I think seeing eye-to-eye on important issues like vaccine inequality, the global corporate tax rate and other key issues. Former U.S. Under Secretary of State and former Goldman Sachs Vice Chair Bob Hormatz joins us later on the show to help define success at the summit in rather cloudy Cornwall. And from G7 tries to Canine Supplies, the CEO of online pet supply retailer and internet powerhouse Chewy will be here to discuss their latest results too. Chewy on a short leash, however, warning that the labour supply and shortages dogging other companies and driving up prices are prowling around the pet world too. In the meantime, a doggedly higher pre-market session after a fetching day of gains yesterday. The S&P closed at record highs. The Dow and the Nasdaq also close to record highs too. Stock and bond investors not sweating the hotter than expected inflation data yesterday, believing that spikes in things like airline tickets and car prices are a short term demand issue and that supply will catch up in the medium term. European stocks also near records. The ECB, European Central Bank, saying once again it believes inflation will be transitory too. It's a common message. Great news for the UK recovery as well, with growth rising 2.3% month over month in the month of April. That's almost 30% higher compared with the same time last year. And the G7 big spenders perhaps set to give a further boost to the British bottom line this week as well. And that's where we begin the drivers as we speak. The leaders of the world's seven most advanced economies are arriving for a historic G7 summit on the Cornish coast. Standing by to welcome them are British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his wife Carrie Johnson. It's the first time in almost two years the leaders of the world's richest democracies have talked face to face, as I mentioned. And it's also President Biden's first overseas trip since taking office, vaccines, COVID aid and the climate crisis top of the agenda. Nick Robertson joins us from Cornwall. Nick, great to have you with us. And it's a successful meeting already by um, normal standards, I think, with leaders pledging to make donations of a billion vaccine doses by the end of 2022. Economic recovery, whether it's more environmentally friendly or more equitable, also among the talks today. Yeah, I think it also depends a little bit uh, 
uh, on who you ask about whether or not a billion vaccine doses is, is sufficient. I mean, it sounds like a big number, doesn't it? And you think that would be go a long way to contributing to the aims that Boris Johnson uh, laid out, which is let's have everyone on, on the planet vaccinated by the end of 2022. But Gordon Brown, who knows a thing or two about finance, being a UK's ex-finance minister and former prime minister, and a number of other former world leaders have said, hold on, G7, um, what you really need to achieve that goal of everyone vaccinated by the end of 2022 is, Ill, uh, properly vaccinated, is 11 billion vaccines. And the only way to achieve that is by pledging uh, the governments here, pledging sufficient funds to encourage the production, to encourage the manufacturers to scale up their production, uh, produce more of the vaccine. Um, but absent, you know, a massive commitment like that, a massive financial commitment, um, the giving away of a billion vaccines is going to miss the target. So I, it sounds good. Now, are they, these leaders going to come up with a formula that sounds like what uh, the former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown wants? Um, or, or are they going to fall short of, of that sort of lofty goal of really working together uh, to come up with a financial package that would incentivize all those uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers? It's such a great point, Nick. And to your point, it's only a step in the right direction. It's nowhere near what we need. And there are other nations out there. And this is part of the sort of geopolitical consequences and conversations that will happen as well. Russia is also a manufacturer of these vaccines, China. And it's that balance of vaccine diplomacy, I think, that everybody has to uh, talk about and find here. Not the only thing on the agenda. And I do want to talk about some form of equity on the business side as well, which is what we're coming into with this meeting. And that is some kind of an agreement over a minimum corporate tax rate of 15% for these nations. And that's no small feat either if we can get it agreed. And it's certainly something that President Biden's been pushing for, and he'll right. feel that he got something positive out of uh, out of this G7 summit. And and it's being spun or played by the White House, if you like, as you know, not just filling the coffers of the United States with these sort of massive multinational tech companies who were able to sort of previously take advantage of of, of paying virtually no taxes. Um, but it will actually, the money will go into development within the United States, into infrastructure, into education, into health. And the spin-offs from that to the more developing nations around the world, that's how the White House is saying this 15% uh, minimum global corporate tax can work. Because that is the thrust of this meeting today, recovery, but showing how there can be a, f a fair, sustainable and equitable economic distribution across the planet. That's one of the big agenda goals here. Yeah, equitable, the key word there. And let's hope it doesn't take years and years and years to actually get agreed and then implemented. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Now on the fringes of the G7, Britain's Prince Charles hosting top CEOs, including the chief executive of Bank of America, to discuss climate change at a meeting in London. Anna Stewart was there to see the proceedings. Anna, this is vitally important, not just to have governments on board with fostering more ambitious targets for emissions, but also the business community as well. We saw coming into this meeting, big CEOs saying we actually need to have entrenched targets for climate goals. And it's so interesting that Prince Charles has really been fighting the corner for private sector businesses on climate change now for many years. In fact, he's been beating the drum 
for sustainability now for over 50 years before really it was a trendy boardroom buzzword. And I think yesterday seeing those CEOs representing sectors from aviation to fashion to pharma to finance all so committed to net zero targets. And actually Prince Charles's Sustainable Markets Initiative has brought a 300-strong network of CEOs to the fore. Now, some of those will be there tonight at the G7, and one of them was the CEO of Bank of America, who I got a chance to speak to. And he just said to me, you know what? Sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. It's a no-brainer. We produce profits for our shareholders, and we produce the good for society. And sustainability is a, the way you express that. And, and we produce very strong profits and we produce good for society. And by the way, all the other SMI companies have the same and similar commitment. So our commitment to capitalism is resolute. It's the way these problems are going to get solved. But our commitment to capitalism done right is also resolute. And that's where the sustainability and done right comes in. A good energy future, human capital, other types of things are important. The coalition of CEOs here today are absolutely committed to sustainability. But for many businesses all around the world that are just recovering from the pandemic and trying to get back on their feet, sustainability could be more on the back seat. Well, we'd have to help the businesses still struggling cross the river and get to the other side. The good news is that pool is shrinking every day through the great work of the fiscal and monetary stimulus around the world and the vaccine production. So that's all good. But if you think about it, everybody's committed to this. We have literally millions of clients in small business. We have hundreds of thousands of mid-sized businesses. And they're all asking us, can you help me make that transition? And the reason they have to do it is their clients. They sell something to somebody, they've made the commitment. Uh, They buy something from somebody and they need them to make the commitment so they can make the commitment to the seller. So the supply chains and and things like that in the financial service industry, it will help them make that transition. As well, the SMI companies banding together can help provide roadmaps for smaller companies to follow. And so one of the things we're doing is providing a roadmap for all banking companies to get to net zero. This is what you can do. Take our expertise and apply it. You may do it differently, but here it is. Mr. Moynan has a very important seat at a very important table tonight. He will be at the G7 along with the other CEOs who were there with Prince Charles yesterday to try and push the agenda, to try and work more with governments to see how they can accelerate uh, the push for net zero. Uh, And in addition to that, Julia, there's going to be quite a lot of star power tonight. It's not just Prince Charles. Also, Prince William, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, who's just wrapped up a roundtable discussion, actually, with Dr. Biden, the First Lady. And also, Her Majesty the Queen will also be there. So the royal red carpet well and truly rolled out in the name of climate change. Yes, a royal affair. I'm looking forward to seeing the Queen in action tonight as well. Anna Stewart, great job there. Thank you so much. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are waiting for the arrivals of the G7 leaders. And the moment we start to see them, we will bring that to you live. For now, we'll head to China, where ride-hailing giant Diddy is gearing up for a major public debut in the United States. The company, which describes itself as the world's largest mobility platform, filed paperwork for its long-anticipated IPO in New York. Claire Sebastian joins us with more. Claire, such excitement surrounding this, not only because this is a Chinese company at an interesting moment deciding to come to New York and IPO, but when they make this filing, you really start to get a sense of some of the financials. And this is a monster IPO. Yeah, Julia, this is essentially the the Uber of China, a giant sort of mobility platform that encompasses taxi hailing, ride hailing, carpooling, 
bikes and e-bikes, there's freight, there's some grocery and food delivery as well. So, so a, a huge sort of conglomerate of tech services, a mainstay of China's formidable tech sector. And the comparison with Uber is useful because they are bigger by many metrics. The uh, the revenues they made last year, which by the way was a down year because of COVID, 21 billion versus 11 billion for Uber. They have 156 uh, million monthly active users versus 98 uh, for Uber. So, so, so they're very much larger. The IPO size, we don't exactly know how much they want to raise. The reports are that it could be between 70 billion and 100 billion. That could put them uh, at a higher market cap to Uber, which is about 92 billion uh, at the moment. So, so this is a giant. They are, by the way, they've had trouble making a profit just like Uber and Lyft have. They were profitable uh, by just a little bit in the first three months of the year. Uh, So that is something for investors to look at. But for investors, this would really be a play on China, this highly tech-driven economy and the demand for consumers for for these services as the country comes back from COVID-19. Right now, uh, Didi makes 93% of its sales in China, Julia. Yes, and the comparison with Uber is important for another reason as well, of course, because Uber tried in China and was crushed like a bug. The compensation prize, maybe, was an investment in huge competitor Didi Chuxing. So they'll benefit another big investor. You probably don't need to even guess this one. SoftBank, of course, with their Vision Fund, also going to benefit from this. Yeah, SoftBank, a huge investor in Didi. They're they're the biggest one at about 21% of the holding. Uber has 12.8%, so that's no small matter for them either. And the third one is Tencent, which has 6.8%. So this could mean a major windfall for these companies. SoftBank has a lot of sort of irons in the fire when it comes to mobility and delivery and all of that. It's hit a small hurdle with Grab, the Indonesian ride-hailing service, which has delayed its SPAC merger, that type of IPO, to the fourth quarter of this year. So this could be a good moment for it to, to make a windfall from Didi. Uh, and it could, of course, mean as well, Julia, a windfall for the 38-year-old chairman and CEO of Didi, Will Wei Cheng. He owns 7% of the company. So there could be some big money at play here. Yes. Can't wait to see what uh, happens when that company arrives in New York. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Okay, another day, another hack. This time, the target was Electronic Arts. One of the world's biggest video game publishers, hackers stole source code, code, my apologies, used in some of EA's most popular games. Brian Fung has been poring over the details. Just to be clear, this wasn't, I believe, Brian, a ransomware attack, but they were breached and source code was stolen. What more do we know? That's right, Julia. This was not a ransomware attack, uh, but it was an attack that appears to have led to the uh, loss of some amount of source code belonging to games uh, that include FIFA, Madden, Battlefield. This is the uh, the game engine known as Frostbite, which is sort of a, a key uh, property owned by uh, by Electronic Arts. It's the the software that powers many of these games, and that was uh, apparently leaked to. Uh, to hackers who claim to have stolen as many as 780 gigabytes worth of data. And it wasn't just the Frostbite engine. The uh, hackers also claim to have stolen software development tools, as well as some code for EA's uh, matchmaking servers, which are used to um, connect players within games. Uh, Now, EA says, again, no player data was affected. Um, and it doesn't believe that its games will be affected or that its business will be affected substantially by this. Um, but nevertheless, it's a substantial uh, reminder of the threat that cybersecurity, uh, that, that cyber criminals um, have against uh, you know, businesses that aren't protected. 
uh, let me just read you a little bit of the statement um, that EA put forward uh, following um, this incident. They said, uh, after this incident, we've already made security improvements and do not expect an impact on our games or our business. We're actively working with law enforcement officials and other experts as part of this ongoing criminal investigation. Now, uh, cybersecurity experts say even though uh, this doesn't appear to be something that will affect um, EA in the short term, uh, the theft of source code can allow hackers to develop um, you know, future compromises to, uh, to games that EA publishes, allowing them to create cheats, for example, uh, or find ways to pirate the software uh, and, and allow players to play the games without buying it. So uh, that could be, you know, one of the longer term effects we see out, out of this uh, out of this hack, Julia. Yes, we'll have to look out for people who suddenly get really good at some of these games and being facetious. Another day, another hack. And that's a problem. Brian Fung, thank you so much for that update there. OK, still to come. Relationship reset as President Biden begins his first international tour. Can he convince friends and foes alike that America is back on the world stage? And from a diplomatic drive to a dog's delight, the CEO of Chewy joins with a tale of soaring growth. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we're looking at live pictures on the beach there of the G7 summit in Cornwall, a waving Mario Draghi there of Italy striding over to meet Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, and his wife in a beautiful pink dress, not reflecting the weather there. But oh, fist pumps there, of course, reflecting the pandemic conditions that we're currently in. And of course, all the heads of the G7 nations will be getting into position shortly for the landmark family photo before that summit begins. Just a quick conversation there between the British Prime Minister and uh, the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. It's good to see people in person. It's also going to be a symbolic moment, of course, coming up for Joe Biden, who takes his place among them for the first time as president of the United States. This face-to-face -face meeting with his counterparts is also his first real chance to convince American allies in person that the Trump era is behind them. Much to discuss. And we're now just seeing Suga, Prime Minister Suga of Japan and his wife striding up to meet Boris Johnson too. Joining us now is Bob Hormats. He's Managing Director of Tiedemann Advisors and he has 50 years of experience in international politics and business. He served in five presidential administrations, most recently as President Obama's Under Secretary of State. Bob, always fantastic to have you on the show. I'm actually smiling as I'm watching the leaders meet. It feels so good to see them all meeting in person for the first time in, what, 18 months, if not more. Uh, your views on what we've already seen from this G7 meeting and the agreement to provide vaccine doses. It feels like a small step and a long path, but it is a success nonetheless. Well, I do think that is a an important thing, first of all, because the world needs it. Mm. And a lot of people are still dying of this pandemic. And second, because it demonstrates that the Western democracies are taking bold action to support the effort to uh, contain this horrible disease. And, and, and I think this uh, effort by the United States, Great Britain and, and others uh, is, is important from a health point of view, but also symbolically important of, uh, of their unity and their commitment to uh, a, a better global world. 
Yes, and we're just watching, I'll just mention to our viewers as well, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there, and a symbolic measure by him as well, putting a mask on in order to uh, fist pump and elbow knock with uh, the British Prime Minister there as well. So a quick photo for them. Bob, part of this, as you were discussing there, is the G7 nations stepping up to provide vaccines, is the vaccine diplomacy that we're already seeing going on by nations like China, nations like Russia as well, and the influence that that brings with it too two crucial countries that are clearly going to be on the forefront of discussions at this meeting as well. Yes, I, I do think that the Chinese uh, with uh, Sinovax and, and, and Sinopharm have been um, making a lot of commitments and uh, in, in the developing world and the Russians uh, to a lesser degree, but they're doing it. And I think it's important that the West do that as well. Um, the the Western countries still have uh, a lot of new cases, uh, although the death rate is down and the hospitalization rate's down. But in, in many parts of the Western world, there's still need for this vaccine. But it's also clear that unless we're able to wipe this out internationally, we're all vulnerable uh, because people move across borders. And therefore, we're not really able to stop this until we've stopped it. And not only in our own countries, which is important, but in other emerging markets as well. And I think that's well understood uh, by most people these days. We're just watching uh, President Biden now and his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, striding along the beach in Cornwall, heading towards uh, the British Prime Minister, hand in hand there as well. That's a really lovely image. And of course, the first time that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, has come in this form to the G7 meeting as well. Bob, in terms of strategic priorities for the United States, and it sort of touches upon what we were discussing there, an international coalition, an approach as far as relations with China is concerned, what can be achieved and what does success look like on that front, at least in the early days and at this meeting? Well, there, there it's, it's a good question because Europe has... Um, problems with China. Um, for instance, there was this agreement on an investment treaty, but now that seems to be held up by the European Parliament because of some sanction measures the Chinese have taken against uh, certain Europeans. Um, and the United States has economic issues, but also issues about uh, the projection of power and influence in the uh, Western Pacific um, and, and the and in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, issues relative to Taiwan. Those are not necessarily uh, issues on which the Europeans focus on, but the U.S. being a Pacific naval power with still a number of troops in the region, uh, Japan and South Korea in particular, uh, has a set of strategic issues. Uh, Europe is not going to go ahead uh, with the, the notion of a uh, a, a military coalition or a strategic coalition against China. That, and I think the U.S. would like to get some Europeans on board on that. But I do think there is an opportunity to get together on international rules, on trade, intellectual property, uh, investment, how foreign companies are treated in China. So the, so the rules and the norms of the global economic and trading order are areas where I do think Europe and the U.S. can get together, uh, and that's more likely than to have some broader strategic 
uh, framework in which they both operate because they, they have different points of view. The Europeans still need to trade and want to trade a lot with China, the Germans in particular. So they, on one hand, want to put pressure on China to abide by uh, global rules and norms. On the other hand, they don't want an, an out-and-out uh, tough set of measures that could uh, jeopardize their trade relations either. Yeah. The United States is a little more willing to take tough state make t- tough statements and also show its uh, naval power in the region which the Europeans of course are not really doing. And speaking of the Europeans we were just watching there the elbow bumps of the French president Emmanuel Macron and his wife just walking off and actually they led the British prime minister and his wife of course Carrie Johnson off and I'm assuming they're heading now in towards the family photo for all the G7 leaders and their spouses which we'll see in a few moments time Bob it's a, it's a delicate balancing act all have their own interests, as, you're, as you were mentioning there, whether it's a sort of collective coalition versus China, a strategic priorities on the trade front, whether you're the United Kingdom or the Europeans and whichever country that you're dealing with. Everyone, to a certain degree, is dealing with challenges with Russia as well. Obviously, formerly yes. of the G8, now it's the G7. How do you handle Russia, whether it's the actors within the nation and the cybersecurity threats that we've seen or the broader challenges of Russia on the surface as a nation and the challenge it represents? This is an interesting challenge that you've raised. I mean, on one hand, I do think that the G7 wants to find ways of cooperating with China. On the other hand, they also want to be able to stand up to China where their uh, issues are concerned. And the United States had really not worked very closely with its allies on either China or Russia or many other things over the last four years. Now it is uh, working much more closely with its allies, which strengthens the hands of its allies and the United States in dealing with certain issues related to China and certain issues dealing with Russia. On Russia, it's a particularly complicated problem for Europe because the Russians have moved a lot of their troops up to the Ukraine border. They pulled some of them back But Putin was clearly taking advantage of the divisions between the United States and um, its European allies in the last administration. And now this is an opportunity to do two things. One, to demonstrate to Putin that the, uh, the, the, the Western allies are working together and much more closely and are are resolved to resist the pressures he's imposing on them. Um, imposing at least on certain countries in the region and, and NATO members or NATO or countries bordering NATO like Ukraine. Um, the other issue that they need to deal with is the cyber issue, and that's a threat to all of them. And, and I do think that while in public they probably won't talk about this a lot, uh, we have seen um, several examples in the United States of cyber action, some of it attributable to Russia. Some of it is not clear in terms of where it came from, but this is a this is an issue. Cyber um, uh, threats, cyber insecurity, cyber threats to uh, infrastructure is something that we've all got to take much more seriously. Um, we had a, we had our uh, pipeline here right. that was uh, halted for for several days. Uh, we had solar winds. Uh, a number of other things. So clearly, all these countries do have an interest in dealing with Russia, not only to make sure Putin understands that they're working together, both in NATO and elsewhere, but also to 
push back on these on these cyber threats, which have gotten worse and are likely to get worse uh, in the future unless something very bold is done. And it needs to be done collectively because you can pick off one country and then go to another and another and another. And that's very harmful. I think it's going to be one of the big issues over the next several years. And the, the Western allies have to work together on this. Yeah. And I think your point about the idea of um a sort of stealth policy of divide and conquer is far less easy with the current U.S. administration than perhaps it was uh, under the previous. We are now seeing the leaders. It is. Bear with me. Bear with me two seconds, Bob. We will come back to that because what we are now looking at is the leaders of the G7 nations. You can also see Ursula von der Leyen there, the uh, European Commission president, also standing with those leaders and the council president there, as you can see on the left. For the family photo, you have the Canadian Prime Minister there, Justin Trudeau. You have Joe Biden next to him, Boris Johnson, of course, in the centre, the host. You've got Emmanuel Macron there. Nice wave from him. And the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel there. Oh, all leaving. Not sure whether they were, but Boris Johnson's leading them off with his usual stride. Bob, we're going to uh, thank you there, uh, Bob Hormatz. Uh, thank you so much for your input there. And I'm going to bring in uh, Issa Suarez, who is also in Falmouth and watching the proceedings to the feel, Issa, I have to say. Yeah. We were just talking about unity there and coming together and uh, the feel, really, even just from the family photo and the introductions and the handshakes, very different from the last G7 meeting, I have and to say. And not just handshakes, as you're, as you're just seeing, Julia, you're seeing them Pumps. a touch on the shoulder between two <laughs> leaders just now. We just quickly saw that. That photo was rather quick. I think if it would be a normal classroom photo, we would have to do it several times. But you can see there, I think that's Emmanuel Macron uh, right there with President Joe Biden, Mario Draghi, as you can see. Clearly, that proximity between, uh, the, U between the US and Europe after, obviously, Four years of President Trump, I'm pretty sure that Europe was very much looking forward to, to seeing Joe Biden face to face and to really recommitting uh, and strengthening their ties and strengthening their alliances. Uh, and what a stunning setting as well in Cornwall as the leaders arrive to officially kickstart G7 summit, all of them walking in there uh, to start their meetings. And what they will want to do, of course, is talking, we'll discuss the shared values, which is something that, Julia, I'm sure you've spoken about, that the democracy, human rights, the rule of law, uh, and trying to put a stop to any sort of democratic backsliding that we may see in Europe around the world or any any countries that uh, are going more in an autocratic way. I think that is very clear, something we have heard from President Biden uh, from day one, especially in relation to Russia. But it won't be only Russia being discussed here, as you all know, it will also be China. Uh, the question will be, will they be singing from the same hymn sheet when it comes to China? Because you, as you well know, Julia, some countries within Europe uh, are less hawkish on China for economic reasons. But it's clear as we looked at those images, these are unprecedented times, of course. This is the first time Joe Biden has uh, a major trip, first time we're seeing leaders together uh, since the pandemic, which will take center stage two as one of the main topics. But it's wonderful to see those strengthened, the strengthening of alliances and that proximity right here with, uh, uh, in, in Falmouth, Julia. Yeah, and I think on the point about unity, because I know you've also been speaking to the British Foreign Secretary, an opportunity as well for yeah. 
the UK to promote a Britain is back, we're in action, we want to be part of the global community and an important part of the negotiations for creating this more equitable economic recovery. Challenging in light of the fact, of course, that they're talking about cutting foreign aid. I know that's part of the discussions that you've been having by in the background of these meetings. That's right. That's right. You, you hit the nail on the head. Look, you have this image of global Britain, uh, Boris Johnson taking centre stage as the leader of the G7. You can see that photo that was taken moments ago, seeing live images, uh, mm. those images that, of, of the group photo. But what Boris Johnson has decided, or his government has decided, Julia, is to cut foreign aid from 0.7%, 0.5%. Uh, that has stirred some emotions here in the UK, as you can imagine. Uh, not just within, you know, charities, NGOs, but also within members of his own party who call it morally devastating. Those are the words from David Davis, who's a senior MP. Uh, And so the, the fear, of course, is that this, you know, slashing aid to Yemen, slashing aid to Syria, that it may reduce Britain's clout on the world stage. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns. Um, The Foreign Secretary and I were speaking to him earlier. He, you know, he kind of wouldn't almost go as far as to admit that 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 is a a failure, so to speak. He said, look, we're still one of the biggest contributors when it comes to foreign aid. But uh, as all the leaders meet here today and all this weekend, that is in the shadows. And I wonder whether some of the other world leaders, Julia, will bring that up. The fact that when everyone else is uh, is contributing to uh, to the world, putting you know playing their part, the UK wants to paint this image of global Britain is going the other way, Julia. Yeah, and this is why, as part of this discussion and more broadly, building back in a more equitable manner, focusing on the environment and the climate targets, and everybody we feel singing yeah. from the same hymn sheet in in that regard, and of course yeah. taxes too. No shortage of important items to discuss. Isa, <laughs> great to have you with us and great to have you there. Isa Suarez in Cornwall. Thank you. Thanks. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move, where we are waiting at the beginning of that G7 plenary session where the leaders all begin those all-important talks as we've been discussing. We will bring you images of that plenary session at the moment it begins, as you've just been watching. It feels like a historic moment to see these leaders all back together. We will bring you those images once again as soon as we get them. Now, international diplomacy aside, four of the G7 leaders share a common interest. See if you can guess what it is. Here's President Biden with Major, who has a taste for Secret Service agents. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has Dylan. Here's the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Kenzie, or it's coming up. And finally, French President Macron has Nemo. During the pandemic, the number of dog owners soared as we looked for a canine company, myself included. Meet Romeo. According to the American Pet Products Association, a third of Americans considered adopting a furry friend and over 11 million households actually did it. I know it happened all around the world, too. And that helped deliver growth that got tails wagging at the online pet giant Chewy. In the first quarter, it recorded sales of over $2 billion, up nearly a third year on year. And joining us now, Sumit Singh is the CEO of Chewy. So fantastic to have you on the show. What an incredible 15 months, really, it's been for Chewy. The rise in e-commerce mixed with record levels of, of pet buying. You're so confident you raised your guidance this year. Just let us know what you're seeing. Hi, Julia. It's nice to be Hi. here. Uh, and it was great to see Romeo, by the way. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, no, we're having, you know, look, we've obviously navigated a very challenging year 2020, and we were proud to service the millions of customers that we did because business was booming, uh, right? Pet adoptions uh, was at a record high, and by the way, it continues to comp at double-digit percentages. Uh, there's lots of pet parents out there still looking to adopt and to bring home new puppies and kittens, and, uh, you know, we're here to service those needs. Uh, and we're really seeing, uh, you know, a lot of kind of optimism from that standpoint. The team's executing well behind it, and that's the result uh, you know, that uh, it's essentially why we're delivering the results that we deliver. You know, it's phenomenal. I read recently that the rate of growth of pet buying pre-pandemic versus during the pandemic effectively um, packed almost 10 years worth of pet buying into into one year, which to me just doesn't seem sustainable. Are you seeing any kind of slowdown in the amount of products that people are buying or interactions or repeat buying on the website, too, from those that have already bought pets? Not really. Engagement is really high. Uh, you know, pet parents continue to. I think what the pandemic actually provided was it provided people a lot of time with their pets. And so, you know, generally pets are, are treated as family. And back when we were all going back to work, at least the pet was at home and, you know, they'd likely, you know, spend that time alone. Now, over the last, you know, sort of 12 months or 14 months, there's multiple family members that have interacted. And I think it's just kind of renewed this relationship and the sense of companionship. And, you know, pets, uh, uh, pet parents, I mean, look at it. It's the only category after kids where customers refer to themselves as pet parents. And when that happens, you can, you know, the engagement level remains high. And, uh, you know, that's why we've always called the industry a bit sort of recession resilient to begin with. Yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I definitely have a fur baby. So I call Romeo. You know, I also read that almost 70 percent of the volumes that you're seeing now come from repeat or subscription purchases. So you you make an order online. You say, yeah, I'll have that again in a month's time. I mean, that's huge. What part of your revenues is that even if it's sort of 70 percent of your volume? No, it's actually 70 percent of our revenues go through the ownership program. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So it's a it's a quasi subscription program that customers choose to subscribe into. And they, you know, we deliver products of their choice predictably, reliably and in a high quality manner, uh, you know, at the destination of their choice. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, over half our catalog is subscribed to the AutoShip product. We the telehealth teleconnect service that we launched, we provided complimentary access to our AutoShip customers. And so we really put a lot of thought and a lot of heart behind serving our authorship customers. And that's one of the reasons the, po- the program is so popular. Yeah, this is important as well. Talk to me about this, because you do provide telehealth services, but also connecting um, vets and prescription purchases. Because, again, I've, I've used your website for this too, where you you take your uh, pet to um, hospital, for example. They say, look, we'll get a prescription. You can actually order that on Chewy.com and you guys coordinate with the vet too. I mean, it's also about managing time resources and ease upon which you get prescriptions and not just the more fun stuff involved with having a pet. You're trying to be all-encompassing, it seems. That's exactly right, Julia. Our mission statement is to be the most trusted, convenient destination for pet parents everywhere, yeah? And as part of being that destination, we take it as our mission to be able to connect not only pets and customers, but also the community that services pets and customers. And so in that manner, we believe we are an experience-led company on the back of product and technology, and we use these solutions and bring them to life so that we can service both our customers as well as our community partners better, and that's exactly what you're seeing. Talk to me about some of the challenges that we're hearing from other businesses, whether it's input price 
cost rises or labor shortages, particularly in the United States. You were sort of hinting, because I was listening to the earnings call, that you're also facing similar challenges, particularly on the labor front. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, as we've come out of a really booming year mm. uh, and, and, and we've come into a couple of headwinds into 2021, which the team's navigating pretty effectively, which we're proud of. And those headwinds are generally demand supply, you know, offshoots or off balances driven by either production constraints in uh, wet can production or just driven by labor constraints, uh, which are generally, uh, you know, disrupting the flow of supply chain and goods right now. We expect these to abate in the back half of the year, considering that new capacity is getting unlocked and uh, labor conditions should improve here in the United States at least. And as far as inflation goes, you know, we believe uh, any inflation that we see, or at least right now, you know, what, what our expectation is that the inflation will be picked up uh, or reflected in higher prices. And given the demand supply offset, we don't actually uh, believe that it will offset demand uh, in the marketplace too much. So back half of the year is very, very optimistic. Okay, that's a good uh, that's a good sign. Talk about expansion plans. Fast forward yeah, two years. Uh, what are you doing? Yes. Uh, yeah. So in our mission statement, as I suggested, you know, to be the most trusted, convenient destination for pet parents and partners everywhere. And so we believe <laughs> that our one, we believe pet parents are more the same than different anywhere. And mm. two, we believe that our brand is extensible, and the capabilities that we're building and our ability to service customers is extensible outside the United States. That being said, you know, we've been tremendously focused on the U.S. It's a massive market, over $110 billion. We are 20% penetrated. And we've just had a lot of work and ground that we've covered in the last couple of years. Uh, when I IPO'd in 2019, what we said to the street was international somewhere between one and five years for us. And uh, that goal is still very much intact. And that's the timeline that we're marching towards. And it wasn't delayed by the pandemic. I mean, as we've discussed, the pandemic was challenging in many ways, but also huge for your business. Does that change that that sort of time frame? Accelerate it, not, perhaps? Yeah, not the not the broader one to five years. You know, it's clearly brought us sort of closer into the five year mark. Uh, but the pandemic, you're exactly right. We focused uh, very heavily on the US and refocused all our efforts back into the country. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're we're managing to that same timeline of one and five years. OK, talk to me about what the best selling product is. Well, we recently launched an exclusive line with Disney and uh, Baby Groot and Yoda have been the most popular products that were flying off the shelves. Uh, in fact, we <laughs> forecasted. <laughs> it really, they, they really are cute, uh, you know, and uh, we're bringing them okay, back. So I'm, I'm going to have to stop you there because we're actually just listening to Bo uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson speak and we need to listen to him. Bear with me. We need to make sure that we learn the lessons from the pandemic. We may need to make sure that we don't repeat some of the errors that we doubtless made in the course of the last 18 months or so. And we need to make sure that we now allow our economies to recover. And I think that they uh, have the potential to bounce back very strongly. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons for being optimistic. But it is vital that we don't repeat the mistake of the last great crisis, the last great economic recession in 2008, uh, when the recovery was not uniform across all parts of society. And I think what's gone wrong with this uh, pandemic, or what risks being a, a lasting uh, scar, is that I think the inequalities may be entrenched. And we need to make sure that as we recover, we level up across our societies and we, 
we build back better. And I actually think that we have a huge opportunity to do that because as G7, we are united in our, our vision for a cleaner, greener world, a solution to the problems of climate change. And in those ideas, in those technologies, in which we're all addressing together, I think there, are the, there is the potential to generate many, many millions of high-wage, high-skill jobs. And I think that is what uh, the people of, the, uh, of our countries now want us to, to focus on. They want us to be sure that we're beating the pandemic together and discussing how we'll never have a repeat of what we've seen, but also that we're building back better together and, and building back greener and building back fairer and building back more equal and uh, how shall I, more, in, in, in a more gender neutral and perhaps like a more feminine way. How about that, apart from anything else? So uh, those are some of the objectives that we have before us at, at Carbis Bay. Thank you all very, very much. I'm now going to uh, ask the, our friends from the media very, very kindly to, uh, to leave us to our deliberations, which by tradition, this is meant, this is meant to be a fireside chat between the great democracies of, uh, of the world. Uh, it's, turned in, it's turned into a gigantic media circus in which we have to greet each other several times. Uh, but... Um, Okay, just wrapping up there, that was Boris Johnson just kicking off the beginning of the uh, plenary session there, talking about the need for these nations to work together to beat the pandemic, to ensure actually that it never happens again. He said, let's build back better, uh, build back greener, try and ensure higher wage paying jobs, all the things you would expect from all these leaders to be saying at this moment in time. Of course, the question is how. A very sort of cute moment there when he said building back in a more feminine way. Remember that Prime Minister Boris Johnson just got married, of course, too, so perhaps trying to earn some marital brownie points there. But of course, lots of hard-hitting key issues for these leaders to discuss over the coming hours. And we will continue to track those for you. And uh, that was an abrupt turn, of course, from Baby Yoda to Boris there ahead of that. So we should also thank the Chewy CEO for the conversation there too. We're going to take a break, but we will be back right after this. Stay with CNN. In the desert surrounding Dubai, where it rains only 25 days on average per year, water sources are hard to come by. But one company says it's producing one and a half million litres of drinking water right here every year by making water out of sunlight and air. Welcome to the Source Water Farm. Source aims to provide clean drinking water to the more than two billion people living in countries experiencing water scarcity. Dozens of businesses around the world are working on technologies that use air to make drinking water, but Source says its process is completely sustainable. The big idea behind Source is to perfect drinking water for every person in every place. To do this, Source developed a technology they call hydropanels. The device uses solar energy to power a fan that draws in air. This air is then channeled into a sponge-like material where water molecules are absorbed to be distilled and collected. These hydropanels are effectively producing high-quality drinking water day in, day out, without requiring any infrastructure, any power, 
or any type of grid. Currently operating in 48 countries, Source chose Dubai to be their largest water farm. The company established itself here in 2017 because it says the region is keen to invest in these solutions. What attracted us to Dubai is, first of all, the, the fact that it is a hub for the Middle East Africa region. It also is a center for new innovations for key sectors such as agriculture and water. Experts say one of the biggest challenges facing this tech is the difficulty of wider distribution. Bevahid believes a bigger hurdle is getting people used to the idea. As with most disruptive technologies, it's initially people are hesitant to change, they're reluctant to try something new. And the same holds for the water sector. People here are accustomed to the staple solution for water generation. And what we're proposing is a kind of a diversified menu, effectively. In Dubai, Source operates in this desert camp, popular with travelers. But the company's ambitions stretch far beyond tourist attractions. They're already present on five continents and say they're working with schools, hospitals, hotels and communities. And since Source's starting point is just the sun and air, the sky might be the limit. Anna Stewart, CNN. Okay, that's it for a pretty lively show. Stay safe, snooze lots like Romeo, and coverage of the G7 continues on Connect the World with Becky Anderson next. Have a great weekend. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.